Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Always a joy to be here. Always a joy to be with uh, Dr. Aiken. Always a joy to be here with uh, my son, Art, his uh, three sons and uh, three of my ten grandchildren, and then uh, his wife, Sarah. So every time I come here, I come with multiple reasons and multiple glad tidings. But to you, the students and the faculty and the administration, thank you as well. The seminary means the world to me. The, the work that you do is beyond the pale of comparison, and I am grateful for you, and I'm grateful for what you are doing in life, in ministry, and in the world. I cannot imagine what it would have been like in 1940. And even though I am old, I am not that old. The fact that my father was a top turret gunner on a B-24 flying over Germany in World War II connects me to this event in a significant way. But I cannot imagine what it would have been like on that particular occasion. The year was 1940, and it's one of those moments, quite frankly, on the crux of history, that if it had gone one way, the world as we know it would be significantly different. Perhaps the world as we know it would not even be known as we could even imagine. And the event was the invading forces of Nazi Germany. And Hitler was beginning to move over Europe on a westerly path where it looked for certain that the world was about to see a new power. And in 1940, already Poland had fallen in 1939. And then by 1940, Denmark, Norway, and then they got the word that Belgium had fallen. Shortly thereafter, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, and by 1941, Yugoslavia. It seemed inevitable that Nazi Germany would be the new modern-day Roman Empire. It seemed inevitable that what was about to take place would change the course of history in a way that only to us could be horrendous. For that leader was about to take charge. Hitler was assuming one nation after another, consuming one people group after another. It was during this time that the history of Winston Churchill becomes to a greater forefront. And whether you have seen the, the, the recent movie about the darkest hour, if you've read biographies, you know much of what was taking place during that time from those accounts of him and England. But the essence of it was this, Great Britain, indeed all of the island, all of the empire was greatly divided. There was a division on whether or not there was going to be a peace at any cost or that there would be a battle that would be fought. It seemed like everything was pointing toward compromising, allowing the Germans to take over not only those places they had already assumed and consumed, but also the island of Great Britain as well. It looked like the world as we know it was about to change. 
But for those of you who know the history of Churchill, you know that even though he was moving in one direction, and that was, should we compromise just to save the people? He went out among the people and he began to get their perspectives. Do not compromise. Whatever it takes, even to the last drop of our blood with every man and woman fighting on the streets of London, fight to the end. And as he heard from the people, he began to realize there was going to be unity around this cause. There would be, regardless of the outcome, a people coming together for the right thing. And as Churchill said, we will never, 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 never surrender. We will fight to the death. When he spoke first to the outer parliament, then he spoke to parliament, and then he spoke to all the people. It was at that moment, under the leadership of Churchill, that a nation became united. And even though the war would drag on for another five years and not until the allied forces began to join the battles in 42 and forward did we begin to see the tide turn. And even though it was agonizing with the bombing of London and all of the deaths that occurred, they stayed united. They stayed together. And as a consequence, not only was the island nation saved, but civilization as we know it. They remained united. There's a single verse of scripture that I will do in proper exegesis too, I know. But it's a text of scripture that I want us to focus on in Philippians, the fourth chapter. And even though the pericope is much longer than one verse, I would have us look at verse eight, Philippians four, and hear these words of incredible unity. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Focus on these things. Absorb these things. Be consumed with these things. And as we break this apart word by word, I want us to understand this is not merely some exposition of a few words. This is who we are to be. For quite frankly, we stand at another critical juncture. Christianity, evangelicalism across North America, our own Southern Baptist Convention, the individual churches that make up the evangelical world and the SBC, we're on a similar path. And if we don't understand that the path of coming together for the right thing is the path we must take, well, then we will begin to fight for the forces that we should not be fighting for. Remember the Apostle Paul, to just skip to 
another verse as a little bit of background, would write to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 6, verse 12, he would say this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the dark forces, against evil spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But in many of our churches today, the battles are taking place within the members. The body of Christ is being ripped apart, drawn asunder as we're not fighting spiritual warfare we're fighting one another in our denomination more often than not what gets the front page of the internet is how we're fighting against one another in our churches what rises to the forefront is the business meetings where we often fight against one another We're not dwelling on these things. And quite frankly, I too am tempted to go that way again and again and again where I am not focusing, where I am not dwelling on the things that the Apostle Paul had told us through the inspired and errant word of God that we are to dwell upon. You know the pericope very well. You know the passage very well. Paul had written a magnificent letter to the church at Philippi. His love and joy was overwhelming and evident in almost everything that he had said. The church, at least from the outside looking in, was as unified as one that we could imagine in the New Testament era. And then it's almost like Paul says, time out a minute. Hang on. We've got a little issue here. I wish I knew a little bit of background of verse two of Yodi and Syntyche, and I wish I knew what the conflict was, but it does not seem like that is the point there. I wish I fully understood in verse three what Clement's role was and the rest of the coworkers who were to come alongside of them and deal with this apparent disagreement. I wish I could have known, but I guess until we see him face to face, we will not know all these parts we do not know. But it is this time that Paul just says time out. In this wonderful unified church, we have this issue. We have this complication. And after he addresses it, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the papyrus scroll being unfurled and read and Yodi and Syntyche are right there? And all of a sudden, maybe they realize, hey, we're going to be in the Bible forever. There's a couple of them that are really causing dissension within the church. And there would be people in uh, 2018 talking in a chapel live streamed across all over the place about us and the dissension that is going on. But can you imagine if they were there what it would have been like to hear this letter read, to hear the church addressed in all these wonderful words of joy and commendation and love. But then I urge, Yodia, urge you, Syntyche, to agree. Paul was understanding that if the body is united, it cannot fight the right enemy. Paul was understanding that if we were not together, we would be torn apart. And in the modern day, particularly American church, we can talk about the bad news, and the bad news is evident. In our own denomination, it takes us 
many more people to win one person to Christ than it did 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 40 years ago. We've had an incredible conservative resurgence of theology, but the number of people that we're reaching with the gospel by the most common measures has not taken place. Is it possible that we have become so divided that we've mistaken the enemy and that we're fighting among ourselves. Paul is very clear. He said, I want you to dwell on these things. He said, I, I, I want you to understand that this is important. It wasn't that long ago that I was getting my hairs cut. I don't know why you go get a haircut. I got several, so I always go get my hairs cut. I was getting my hairs cut and, and um, because I am in a kind of a holy huddle type of a cocoon of people with whom I associate. Uh, my wife is a Christian. I come home to her and she's a Christian. I go to work and most of the people in my office at Lifeway are Christians. And, 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 and I go to church and even though where my son Jess is my pastor, I, I am probably surrounded more by Christians than not. I'm in my holy huddle. And I have to be highly intentional to break out of the huddle. And my greatest sense of intentionality is when I pray, Lord, allow me this day to come in contact with someone with whom I may share the love of Christ in word and deed. And for whatever reasons, it's like when I go get my hair cut, I, really, I go to a very expensive salon named Supercuts and, 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 and I'm, I'm waiting and I'm praying for whomever the stylist will be to give me the opportunity to say something for the glory of God. So I sat down this last time and I was getting several hairs cut and I started talking about general things about church. And she says, wait a minute, what kind of church do you go to? I said, I go to the church at Spring Hill. She said, no, 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 no. What's not the name of the church, what kind is it? I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, the different cults, Methodist, Baptist, all those, which, which, which one are you? I said, well, I'm a Baptist. She froze. I'm glad she froze or she would have stabbed me with the scissors at the moment. <laughs> she said, oh, y'all are those people who fight all the time. And I just felt the breath going out of me. That is our witness. That's what the world sees. And you know what I could have done? I could have, I could have stood before you, before you this morning and I could have said, shame on you. Shame on this denomination. Shame on those who carry the name of Baptist. Shame on those who carry the name of Christ for acting that way. But you know what? Quite frankly, I say shame on me at times. When, when, when the word of God begins to penetrate my heart, I begin to realize that, oh, I've got so far to go. Divided churches, divided denominations, divided believers. Finally, brothers. Finally, in conclusion, here's what you're to dwell on. Dwell on what is true. 
The true is that which responds to the reality of God, that which represents who he is. Focus on him, that which is true. Dwell on whatever is just. That word is used of God himself who is just. In Romans 3.26, 1 John 2.29 and 3.7 and of Jesus Christ in Acts 3.14 and 7.52 and 22.14. 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 21. We are to think of he who is righteous and just. To think on just means to think on the holy nature of God. To think on what is just means that we want to be a reflection of the one who is all just and to model our behavior after him. Dwell on what is pure. The, the word has ceremonial purity in its background, but it means much more than that. It means that as we focus upon that which is holy and honorable and just, that we're also focusing upon the one that is total purity. In a day and age which moral purity is something that the world looks at us and says, is it really exists in the church? We're to focus on what is pure. We're to dwell also going back on that which is honorable. That means to what focuses on that which brings the most awe, that which is worthy of respect. It's required of deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 11. And Elders should keep their children under control with all dignity in 1 Timothy 3, 4. And all Christians should lead a life that is quiet and godly and in dignity. 1 Timothy 22, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. And then the word comes, whatever is lovely. The word only occurs one time here in the New Testament. It means what is pleasing, agreeable, attractive. But when we begin to sing this word, we must take it in the context of which we are reading it, that the one who is most pure and attractive, Jesus Christ. And so our mind should be focused upon our Savior. Our mind should be consumed with the one who gave himself up for us on the cross. We're to dwell on what is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Listen to this. This, this word comes from a compound word which means to speak well of something. It means to say something good about something or someone. It refers to those that really deserve us to talk about their good reputation. Paul would write to a disturbed church at Corinth in this magnificent portion of 1 Corinthians that we often call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And he would say, if we're to be unified, even though we are fallen sinners, even though we know that there is no one is perfect, we're to believe the best about another person. 
We refuse to believe an evil report or gossip about a brother or sister until there is certainty to establish it. We're to dwell on that which is commendable. And so it was with the forces of Hitler about to take over all of Europe as they were moving west. And so it was that the British people said, we will come together. We will be united. But here is where practical application begins to stretch us, begins to make us think this passage is not just about those who are out there. The word of God is written to convict me. And even as Tom Rainer was putting these words together, I was reminded again and again how I have fallen short so many times. The apostle Paul could say at the end of this passage, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And though knowing he was not perfect, he knew that he at least was a good human example to follow. I don't know if I could write those words about Tom Rainer. And so I'm asking this question and I'm asking if it applies to each of us individually. Because if we come away from a passage of scripture about dwelling on these things and we haven't asked, am I doing this? We have missed missed a primary intent of the word of God for God's spirit to speak to us through his word. So here are some practical questions I would ask of you and I would ask of me. Do we dwell on these things with our family? This morning I uh, spoke briefly at a breakfast some of your students here. And one of the questions that was asked of me is, how can we stop the church comparison game? In other words, how can we go to a church as a pastor or in some staff role or church planning role, how can we go to a church on the mission field and not compare ourselves to how others are doing? How can we stop that? It hit me that the comparison game means that we don't love where we are. Because if we love where we are, we would be so in love with the bride of Christ, the local manifestation of the bride of Christ, that we would never think about comparing her to someone else, just as in our families. No husband should compare his wife to another and say, wow, if only she were like her, or if only I were married to her. Just like no wife should look at a husband and say, oh, if he were only like this guy. Do we dwell on what is honorable, what is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely with our own family? Do we look at our children as tiring as they can be at certain points of their growing up in life? And do we look at them and dwell on these things? Perhaps a 
modern day question, at least for me, but it's the world in which you live in, is do we dwell on these things and what we read and write? Do we dwell on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable? If there's any moral excellence, if there's any praise, dwell on these things. Do we dwell on these in the social media realm? Do we dwell on these in the blogosphere? Are we just happy to join the rants and the gossip and the negativity? Do we dwell on these things in our denomination? Are we more concerned about purity or politics? About being righteous or being right? About sharing our faith or sharing our, trust, our, our frustrations? Are we more concerned about the Great Commission or the latest, greatest controversy? Do we dwell on these things? Am I so absorbed with the things of Christ that just as Peter was facing the Sanhedrin and knowing that he was going to face most likely increasing time of imprisonment or even death, and they told him to stop talking about Jesus, and he says in Acts 4.20, I'm sorry, but I can't help but speak about these things which I have seen and heard. I am so consumed with Jesus that I have to talk about him. Whether Peter, whether the Apostle Paul or any of the others, they dealt with controversies when they were matters of prior, priority of doctrine. But when it came upon things that really matter beyond that, they focused on what is good, what is lovely, what's pure, whatever is praiseworthy. Do we dwell on these things in our churches? Some of you are serving in churches now. Some of you will be serving in churches in other times. You know what? Church members can be really ugly. And they can hurt deeply. And they can criticize at times unexpectedly. And how do you respond? Do you respond defensively? With anger? With hatred? Look, been there, done that. Deacons meetings. Oh, some of the deacons' meetings. I've had fantasies of Ananias and Sapphira in some of my deacons' meetings. My, 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 my heart has just not been right. But do we dwell on these things in our churches? Do we dwell on these things in our lives? That which is true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable. Is that where our focus is? Is that where our heart is? I have one hero of the faith among many, and this one is actually a heroine of the faith. Her name is Frances Mason. There are very few people that I have known in my life, in my ministry, in my 62 years on this planet that have embodied this type of focus. She focused, she did, on the true. She focused on the honorable. She focused on the just, she focused on the pure, she focused on the lovely, she focused on the commendable. 
She didn't have her head in the sand, unaware of things that were disturbing or problematic, but that's how she focused. When I became to be her pastor many years ago in Birmingham, Alabama, here's what she said. Brother Tom, you are my pastor. You are not perfect, but neither am I. And I promise these three things for you. I promise I will pray for you every day. I promise I'll love you unconditionally because I know you're going to mess up at times, but I'm going to love you unconditionally. And I promise that I will serve Christ through this church under your leadership. These three things, I promise. And in the midst of what was often a very difficult church situation, I would look back upon the words of Francis Mason and I would know that she was embodying exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying. I would understand fully that she was like I wanted to be. Do we dwell on these things? Is that what's consuming us, ladies and gentlemen? Is that really who we are? Is that who I am? Is that where my focus is? Is that where my focus should be? When the Apostle Paul was writing to the troubled church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, he started talking about the body of Christ in a way where he referred to them as the members of the body. And in the first time that we begin to see the word member used in association with a local congregation, he talks about how every member of the body has a function, a role, and that every member is supposed to do their role and to serve for the greater good of the body. By the time he gets over to 1 Corinthians 14, he gets back to the problems and he deals with those. But then he has this wonderful pause, the love chapter. And that love chapter was written for the local church. Certainly nothing wrong with reading it in wedding ceremonies or other contexts, but it was written for the local church. You know the words well. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, does not keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in all the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I'm fully known. Now these three remain, 
faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Dwell on these things. Embody these things. Focus on these things. Let us bring the body of Christ together instead of divided asunder and let it begin with me. Father, may we be the body of Christ that is united. May we not look at your word and say, oh, wouldn't it be great if others heard that? May we look at your word and say, thank you, Father, for speaking to me through your inspired word. May we dwell on these things. May we focus on these things. May we know these things in our lives. And when the world around us seems to be falling apart, Lord, and when the churches around us seem to be divided and divisive, may we be your emissary, your ambassador, and may we focus on these things that you have commanded us to do so. And then we will know that of all of them, love is the greatest. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.